if we're looking at a fundamental problem of we need double to triple the amount of electricity and we need to reduce the amount of carbon uh, that we're producing, you know, something, there needs to be trade-offs to some degree in just from a scientific standpoint on the timelines we're talking about. If someone told us we had 500 years, sure, let's just continue to build solar panels and eventually we'll get there. But we're talking like 30 years, right? 40 years to get yeah. to 2050, uh, 2060 timelines. We, we don't really have the luxury of just saying, oh yeah, we'll just continue to on this pathway that is not uh, that would be most ideal, but isn't actually going to get us to our goals. Welcome to Animalia, a podcast all about making it easy and inclusive to learn about this big, beautiful planet, the life we share it with, and how to protect it. In many of our recent newsletters, we've been covering stories about what we feel is probably the single most important thing we can do to slow down global warming and hit our Paris climate goals which is decarbonizing our electricity grid. It's not just that electricity already accounts for 25 to 33% of our overall greenhouse gas emissions, depending on how much emissions you credit towards electricity and other sectors that use it. It's that our lives are becoming increasingly electric. We're marching towards more efficient electric cars, buses, trucks, and ships. The expansion of artificial intelligence in all aspects of our lives, well, that requires more data which needs more data centers, which run on electricity. Heck, even our financial systems are increasingly shifting towards the world of crypto, which is also powered by electricity. So putting it bluntly, there's absolutely no way to hit our climate goals if we don't decarbonize our electricity grid. Now, Joe Biden has set the goal for the U.S. to get to 80% of our electricity from zero carbon sources by 2030 and 100% by 2050. We sit at roughly 40% today. However, a key part of his plan, the Clean Electricity Performance Program, well, that got dismantled a few weeks ago by Joe Manchin, the Democrat out of West Virginia who, personally speaking, I felt cowardly chose coal and gas to appease his local constituents over saving this planet. So how can we get there? And why is decarbonizing the grid so important? And what are the challenges that stand in our way of doing so? Joining us today is Dylan Lezis, who works on Capitol Hill at the U.S. House of Representatives. He's an expert on clean energy policy and is the exact right person to be talking to about decarbonizing the grid, right after the short break. If you're not part of our Animalia newsletter, well, you should be. Because each week we share out a newsletter sharing three stories designed to be read in just 10 minutes, always covering various aspects of our climate and biodiversity crises, and always being solutions oriented in how we cover them. Our goal is to help you stay more informed and stay hopeful. You can subscribe at joinanimalia.com backslash newsletter, or just click the link in the description of the podcast. Now back to our chat with Dylan. To tee up this discussion, why does Dylan feel decarbonizing our grid is so critical to hitting even our most conservative climate goals? I mean, uh, the first, the most obvious point is uh, the electrical grid is what uh, powers everything else. So if you don't solve your, your grid decarbonization, you're really not solving any of your other decarbonization issues, right? Um, 
say you need to decarbonize the transportation sector or the industrial sector or the home heating sector, like your stoves. Um, if you make, you can have everyone in America driving an electric car, but if you need to put a thousand coal plants up in order to produce enough electricity for it, then uh, you haven't actually made that much of a gain in terms of your, your carbon reductions. Um, and that's, I think, a big theme generally when you're talking about decarbonization is um, you have to look at the whole of the system and how each individual piece that you're talking about works within that. And so that you can focus on what, what's gonna get you the most bang for your buck, right? Um, and so, yeah, I think the, the grid is the most important piece uh, of the decarbonization puzzle, because again, uh, if you can't have a, have a clean grid, you can't really have clean transportation or clean, clean buildings. Um, and so that's why it's really important. And I think also, frankly, it's one of the technologically easiest sectors to decarbonize. Uh, you have a power input and you have an electrical output and you just have to have enough power on the output side and make sure that the, the inputs are clean. Um, whereas, you know, in industry, there's all sorts of different processes and transportation. You have different types of transportation that need uh, you know, long haul trucking and freight trains versus personal automobiles uh, versus planes. Um, but in, in the electricity sector, it's simply uh, when I put energy input in and I get electricity out, is the input clean? And then do I have enough electricity on the outside uh, to power all the things that I want to do? From a percentage basis, is it because electricity is obviously feeding uh, industry and transportation and these other sectors, is it hard to sort of quantify what total emissions are coming from electricity or is that pretty clear? Maybe we start with the U.S. Um, I would say it's not hard to quantify. Well, it is and it isn't, right? Like we know how much energy is being, we know how much carbon is being produced from coal plants or natural gas fire plants or et cetera, et cetera. Um, but how much of that could be eliminated through reduced energy usage um, you know, for again, for example, if, um, if you can, or both, or the opposite, if you need to electrify transportation, you're going to need a lot more energy input. Uh, if you can find a new fuel source that's clean somehow, uh, to, to fuel an industrial process that require that they can get taken off the grid, then, uh, then your, your grid carbon emissions would go down as well. Um, but so it is hard to quantify. They, usually it's broken down by the industrial sector, the um, transportation sector, building sector, agricultural sector. And then there's kind of the, the power sector, which is just like your general electricity needs. I think we kind of quantify that as about a third of emissions. Um, but the rest of them, again, if you're so yeah, so it's about a third of emissions is how we quantify it. But again, that plays into those other sectors too. They, they do power the other things. So it's kind of hard to quantify at the margins how much of it is yeah, actually I, the, the grid versus this other sector. And I imagine that's only growing in a way. I think of <clears throat> transportation going more electric. I think of yeah. 
you know, finance going more electric with cryptocurrency. Like it seems like things are heading more towards more electricity than less. So I imagine that's only increasing over time. Yes, a hundred percent. I, there's two trends. I think energy efficiency is a key piece of the puzzle to decarbonization. And we can get into that as well um, to reduce energy use. But, uh, you know, even talk about data centers, uh, the, the tech revolution, uh, if yep, we're going to make autonomous vehicles, right? Um, every single vehicle in America needs to be able to memorize all of the roads and have computing systems that can drive them around safely. Um, that's going to take a massive amount of data. Um, and uh, the Internet of Things, 5G, all of this sort of stuff, is just going to require an incredible amount of data. And data centers are some of the biggest energy hogs out there. Um, so just in that sector alone, we're going to need to increase dramatically the amount of electricity we produce, um, not only for the electrical needs, but for HVAC cooling, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what best estimates I saw have been that in order to electrify all of transportation and to electrify most of buildings and industry that we know how to at the moment, you're probably going to need to either double or triple your electrical output from the grid, um, which gets to how massive the challenge is, is that it's not only a challenge of decarbonizing the 60% of the grid, or the 60% of energy that is fossil fuel based now, it is also doubling, tripling the amount of energy we put out. Um, so you could take the grid right now, just double the amount of power plants we have, and you may need to triple that in order to meet the electrification demands of all the other sectors. Um, so, uh, you know, it is, it, it is a massive problem. We know Again, we know what the inputs have to be in order to get the right outputs, but it's how do we get to the scale that we need to get to while also decarbonizing these other sectors, which make up a third of emissions from transportation, a third of emissions from buildings, uh, 10% of emissions from, from agriculture. For some further context here, the U.S. draws about 40% of its electricity today from zero carbon sources. Now, 20% of this comes from renewables led by wind and hydro. Another 20% comes from nuclear. Now, nuclear is a big, highly debated topic right now and where it fits in our renewable strategy. And we're going to talk a lot about that today, a little bit later. The other 60% comes from coal and natural gas, with natural gas taking the lead overall at 40% of our total electricity mix. Now, these numbers are slightly better than the global average across the countries in the Paris Accord, but not by much. On a global level, roughly 37% comes from zero carbon sources versus 40% in the U.S., and 63% from fossil fuels versus 60 in the U.S. So while one might say the U.S. is average in this regard, well, given our resources, our economic strength, and our talent, I'd say we get a D at best. Now, the U.S. has been proud to boast its switch from coal to natural gas much faster than many other countries have done so. And while, yes, natural gas is cleaner than coal, particularly on carbon, well, natural gas has an Achilles heel, and that's methane. And methane is a big problem. The U.S. has reduced its carbon emissions over the last decade or two, um, simply because we've switched from coal to natural gas. Um, we used to be 80, 85% reliant on fossil fuels. Obviously, there's been some inroads 
um, from the from the renewable sector, but really our emissions reductions have come from switching from fossil fuel, from coal to natural gas, um, which that's a much less carbon intense energy. Um, but it's not. You know, but obviously, it's not. It's not zero carbon like renewables. No, 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 yeah. no, no means. And and frankly, the bigger issues with it are the the methane leakage and flaring and venting and all of that um, on the front end. Methane leakage is a big problem, and traditionally, there have not been a lot of rules and regulations on containing it. That's actually one of the headlines coming out of the UN Climate Summit in Glasgow, as a number of nations, including the US, decided to tighten the screws on methane. Sadly, the three biggest methane emitters, China, India, Russia, didn't play ball. Now, methane is very unique from carbon, particularly on two fronts. For one, it's about 80 times more potent in terms of trapping heat and driving up global warming. But it's also much more short-lived. Methane stays in our atmosphere for 10 to 15 years as opposed to carbon, which stays in there 100 plus. So while there's far less methane than carbon in terms of volume, well, methane presents a really compelling short-term opportunity in slowing warming, since we can make more of a material difference in its atmospheric volume. Methane comes roughly one-third from fossil fuels, mostly natural gas, one-third from agriculture, mostly livestock, and one-third from waste and landfills. So we can think of methane and immediate action on methane as a way to buy us a little time to hit our critical decarbonization goals long-term. And this is pretty important considering time is probably the resource we're running out of most of all. Yeah, for sure. I think the the way it's always been described to me is carbon captures, carbon stays in the atmosphere for about 100 years, roughly, uh, whereas methane stays in the atmosphere for about 20 years, but at 80 80 times the intensity. Um, And I think it, you know, so these are great questions that I think we're all kind of still grappling with, uh, you know, in terms of the path forward on decarbonizing everything um, is, right, we're reducing our carbon emissions. We've seen our methane emissions go up. Uh, you know, a, a harder short-term problem for a longer-term gain, maybe. Um, but there, it also gets to another fundamental question, I think, in this discussion that sometimes gets left out is, if climate change is the number one disaster that's heading for the earth, right? Uh, if, if it's going to cause all of these problems, famine, droughts, food insecurity, food shortages, if you're concerned about immigration at the moment, you should be concerned about climate change because these people aren't just going to stay in their countries and starve to death. Yeah. Um, if you care about your oceanfront property, you care about climate change, right? If, if all of these problems are going to be caused by climate change, then carbon removal or greenhouse gas removal is the, should be the number one focus of everyone and, and especially in the environmental community, right? Um, and so again, when you're talking about uh, different types of energy forms and how to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, you, you kind of have to talk about sometimes making a trade-off on local environmental issues versus the, the, the carbon emissions issue. Um, not always, I'm not saying you, you should regard, disregard uh, environmental issues. And I think there's top gaps you can take, but again, if we're looking at a fundamental problem of we need double to triple the amount of electricity 
and we need to reduce the amount of carbon uh, that we're producing, you know, something, there needs to be trade-offs to some degree in just from a scientific standpoint on the timelines we're talking about. If someone told us we had 500 years, sure, let's just continue to build solar panels and eventually we'll get there. But we're talking like 30 years, right? 40 years to get yeah. to 2050, uh, 2060 timelines. We, we don't really have the luxury of just saying, oh yeah, we'll just continue to on this pathway that is not, uh, that would be most ideal, but isn't actually going to get us to our goals. While much of the attention goes towards lowering emissions and finding ways to pull greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere, as it should, we must not forget to step up our game of protecting our natural carbon sinks, our oceans, soil, plant, and animal life. These natural sinks sequester roughly half of the carbon we emit. Our most ambitious goals on managing temperature rise more or less assume that these natural sinks will continue to operate as is. However, that's far from a reliable thing, considering the unprecedented biodiversity crisis we are in. This is why here at Animalia, we push conversations on protecting our natural ecosystems with the same intensity we push lowering our emissions and getting the hell off of fossil fuels. We need to use, we need to use all the tools we have in order, again, if, if the climate crisis is as existential as it seems to be, and everyone is saying it is, then uh, we need to take all of the tools that we possibly have to fight it, including, uh, you know, uh, reforestation, ensuring the health of our oceans, their giant carbon sinks, making sure the Russian permafrost stays frozen. Um, you know, we, we need to take advantage of, of all of the, the, the tools we have. Um, and so I think that's just like a, an overarching point to make when having this broader discussion, it's not, it's not necessarily about what is one's preferred vision for how to get to where we need to go. It's how do we get to like a pretty audacious goal in a very short time frame, knowing what we know about science and costs and and also political realities of, um, you know, people need to have some support for this these for whatever programs we implement. Otherwise, you're not going to do them. Um, yeah. You know, they won't last. So uh, I think you need to take all of those things into account. And that's just, I think, a, a good a good starting point to, to talk about individual policy or, or the best ways to go about this is, but just to be mindful of all that, because I think too many times when we talk about these issues, people are stuck in, oh, we can just like make new technology and get out of this ourselves. Or other people are like, well, we have to use these these set of policies or these technologies to get out of this. Um, and we kind of missed the point that the carbon removal is the ultimate goal. Let's, uh, let's, let's ensure we focus on using all the best tools we have to do that. So we're at roughly 40% of our electricity today, you said is from uh, non-zero or zero carbon sources. And um, I believe the, the Biden's plan, right, is, is, get that to 80% by 2030 or is it 85? 80, 80% by 2030, 100% by 2035 in the power sector. In the power sector. Yeah. So how would you grade, grade us in uh, getting to that 80% by 2030 goal as of today on October, what is it? 27th, 28th, um, 2021. Um, 
poorly. <laughs> are we? Uh, are we? Yeah, we call it a D minus, maybe. <laughs> hope, hopefully, in the next few weeks, we'll, we'll have a better grade. Um, uh, but I think, um, yeah, we're not failing. We're not failing. Uh, but you know, we're not getting into Harvard with our grades. Um, I think, um, you know, there's a lot. Again, there's a lot of different factors that go into into decarbonizing the grid. And, and frankly, it's it's a regional issue, it's a markets issue, so technological issue. Um, you know, I think an extension of the the tax credits will, will be helpful, but I think we need to um, there needs to be a stronger push uh, to to really incentivize utilities to to, to make these changes. Um, and I you know. I don't, I don't foresee that coming. I think you'll see the tax credits extended and, and I think there'll be utilities out there who face investor pressure. Um, and I think you'll see just generally price pressure uh, continue to, to build the trend towards renewables. Um, yeah, look, I guess the question is, will that move the needle fast enough? All right, cause that's the, it, yeah. the utilities, even with the current tax incentive program have been transitioning. Yeah. But it's about, are they transitioning fast enough? Yeah, I think you'll see 2030, no. Um, I think the, the original goal uh, from two years ago of 2050, uh, I think you can see, you'll, it's reasonable to expect us to get to 80 to 100% by 2050. Um, again, given the challenge of we need to, massively expand the amount of electricity we're producing. Um, and also, this is all going to depend on what energy market you are in, what your utility is doing, what resources are available, and also what technologies change. Um, you know, if tomorrow someone takes uh, the hydraulic fracturing technology, can find some steel that doesn't melt at incredibly hot temperatures, and dig a geothermal well down four miles, well, voila, uh, you can power half the country by just digging giant holes in the ground. Um, you know, if someone perfects fusion technology, uh, you know, all of a sudden we have a source of clean energy that the government can probably just pour a few billion dollars into and we have endless clean energy. Um, you know, that's something people don't take into account. If carbon capture technology starts becoming much more much more cheaper, which is whole point of investment tax credits is to is not really to actually get more deployment of these technologies it's really to bring down the cost of them through deployment and and building out of supply chains um so you know no we're not on an 80 percent reduction by 2030 trajectory at the moment um but i think there's a lot of variables um and i do think that the rate of increase in the amount of clean energy on the grid will continue to, to grow as technology costs continue to come down. Um, you know, for example, the energy storage, battery storage, salt cavern storage, hydrogen fuel cell storage, um, those are things that can really, really help renewables grow and become much, much more economical. Um, you know, a big, a big issue with renewables is not so much their, their expense anymore. It's their, I don't want, I hesitate to call it unreliability, uh, their variability. The variability, um, yeah. 
it's uh, it's hard for grid managers with our pretty old grid systems right now to manage uh, solar output on a literal second by second, minute to minute basis. Um, they have to move those electrons and they're, we, they, they're like, well, I hope that cloud move, moves to the left. Um, so I have enough power. Um, and so having an energy storage system, that would be great to, to alleviate that. And the question is bringing down the cost of energy storage systems, right? Because they're, they're just expensive now or they don't last as long as you would like them to. Um, so I think you'll see the the cost curve continue to bend down. I and mean, you've seen like a 90% reduction in cost of solar panels mm -hmm. in the last decade. Um, you'll continue to see that and you'll continue to see utilities, especially in um, uh, auction market uh, ISOs, um, continue to, to, to increase the rate of clean energy that they're putting on their systems just because they'll, they'll be more cost effective. Um, but uh, you know, you'll you also see some laggards out in uh, in like the public uh, public energy world. The volatility of solar and wind have certainly been a limiting factor historically, and still exist to date. But a heavy influx of innovation is fostering a number of solutions, from improving storage, which is most important of all, to increasing its transmission. One of the major challenges with wind and solar is the distance between where it's generated large rural areas, for example, to where it's most needed, energy-intensive urban centers. Now, fossil fuel plants can be set up anywhere, including just outside major cities, hence why they see so much pollution. When in solar need improved electricity transmission, larger, more powerful transmission lines that many people resist being built in their local areas. So this is another problem we need to solve for. So what are some of the other barriers out there for decarbonizing our electricity? Let's let's talk about those barriers in terms of, you know, what, you know, is holding us back from getting to that 80% by 2030, uh, even by 2035. Maybe and this might be hard for you to, again, there's multiple factors, right? We talk about renewable yeah. supply, renewable storage, uh, policy, just old guard leadership, right? In some cases, yeah. um, uh, the, the volatility of renewable sources, of course, that's where, you know, nuclear can, can play a helpful role. Um, could you maybe stack rank, uh, this might be hard to do quickly, but maybe stack rank the barriers as you see them and sort of order of, you know, what you think would be the ones that you'd like to see solve first that you think are, are holding us back the most just in a kind of succinct way, like, you know, what, what, how would you list those barriers in terms of what, if you could wave a magic wand and, and have those barriers, barriers solved? Yeah, I think the, the number one biggest barriers still cost. Um, they have to compete on cost and sometimes they're not there. Um, I think the second biggest barrier is probably um, non-auction non, non market uh, energy grids. Um, there's, you know, there's ISOs in New England, New York, uh, most of the East Coast and the West Coast, uh, the California ISO, where the energy providers just basically bid in three years in advance for, and they pick the lowest cost energy providers. Um, renewables have been super successful in that because as they get cheaper, they can bid in. Uh, 
most of the middle of the country doesn't do it that way. The states and, or regions still purchase their electricity. For, like the state comes in and bids, and then they have a, the Public Utility Commission approves the contract. Um, and a lot of times those states have vested interest in having their coal mine or their coal plant, their gas plant stay open because it has jobs um, and the energy is cheap enough. So whatever. Um, I, so I would say those that difference is is going to make a big difference. The, the, the two differences between those energy markets will make a big difference. Um, and then, uh, you know, the, the physical infrastructure of the grid uh, is also going to be a, a, a barrier, given that, like we said, the challenges of moving uh, the, the actual electrons from all of these different sources around uh, is going to require uh, a massive expansion and massive upgrade of, of our grid system. Um, and frankly, being able to do that would unlock a potential of renewables so much, given that super sunny Arizona could produce all of the solar that California needs for Los Angeles. Um, but right now, it's incredibly expensive to build, you know, high voltage utility wires from one state to another. Um, I think the largest wind farm project in the country is in Wyoming. And the biggest hurdle to getting it done was that they need to, they need a market for the electricity. Mm -hmm. So they're building high voltage wires to Los Angeles from Wyoming. Um, but they needed to get permitting to do that through all of the states. Utah didn't want it. They have to go through the federal parcels, et cetera, et cetera. So I think those would be the three biggest barriers, I would say, um, more so than any kind of policy. Like those are policy levers, obviously, but I think just with the status quo, those three things are the biggest barriers. The latter, is that similar to the kind of controversy over the energy corridor in Maine as well? around yeah, yeah yeah exactly um you know so partially it's partially it's people well, up in you know new hampshire they didn't want to chop down the forest uh for the power lines um partially the problem is just permitting uh, oh, but, but just to be clear on that they're talking about a relatively you know kind of small area yeah. of forest and if anything yeah. we also know that some forest breaks are helpful from uh, wildfire control. Not that wildfires have been a problem in yeah. that area like there in no, the West, but yeah. I mean, it was it was a pure nimbyism thing, yeah. uh, for sure. Um, and they they finally did a workaround. They're just going to upgrade the the electrical equipment to get the power into Maine and just disperse it from Maine. Um, but um, but that is going to cost more money and be less efficient than building power lines straight into Massachusetts to feed Boston, which is where most of this energy was going, right? Um, uh, same thing again, if you're talking out West, the federal government owns these giant square parcels of land and then the state owns it. So they have to get a permit every time they cross federal land, then get state permits. And they have to do that for like five states to get to where people live. Um, and that's, I think also just a general mismatch, which is an, another barrier, I think at the moment um, is the places that can produce enough renewable energy or reliable enough renewable energy aren't where anybody lives. Um, so say what you want about uh, back in the day with coal plants and natural gas plants, they just stick them right outside the city, run some power lines in and call it a day. Um, now, there's obviously giant environmental justice concerns about all of that, um, but uh, you know, 
you have to get renewable resources where there's renewable resources. It's windy in the middle of the country. No one lives there. Um, it's sunny in the desert. No one lives there. Um, and so moving that electricity to where people live is, is just a giant challenge, both logistically and financially. Okay, so we know wind and solar are a big part of our energy future. And with more innovation and storage, land efficiency and cost coming down with advanced tech, well, they may one day provide all we need. But between now and then, how are we going to get off fossil fuels in the more immediate term? We need a zero carbon energy source that is steady, scalable, and has low costs on a per unit basis as something like natural gas. Well, this energy source already exists. It's called nuclear. And everyone on the renewable energy anti-fossil fuel end of the spectrum, like us here, need to embrace it. That's been more of a communications issue and also lack of an investment issue here in the U.S., but it's starting to change. The image always comes to mind when I think of nuclear is I think of like a, a junior prom and there's this out of town girl and she's, she's beautiful. She's wonderful. She's charming, but she's an out of towner and everyone's got the prom is kind of looking at her. They kind of want to talk to her, but they're not sure how to. And, you know, they all would probably have a really good time if they asked her to dance, but they're just, caught up in their own insecurities around just someone they don't understand and from out of town, maybe they had a previous out of towner who, you know, kind of wreaked havoc on the town. And so now they don't trust the outsiders. And that's just the image I have of nuclear at the prom. <laughs> and I, I don't know if that holds water at all that, that analogy and um, what your thoughts are on it, but you know, do, do you believe and think that, you know, nuclear needs to be an important part of the puzzle and, and what is, really holding us back because it doesn't, I understand the, the cost of setting up these plants and over budget. It's been a problem historically, but you know, when we want to spend money and subsidize things, we can do that. And yeah. the advancements in that tech are getting better. What is preventing us from just embracing it? <laughs> That's a great question. I love that analogy. Um, uh, I'll dance with nuclear all night. Um, <laughs> I think, um, well, we're at a point now where we're at two different, two different conversations about nuclear, right? You have your existing nuclear power plants, the, the AP-1000s um, that are these massive, massive energy producers. Um, also cost an incredible amount of money um, to, to build and to run. Um, I think at the moment, I, you know, nuclear, frankly, right, they solve pretty much all of the problems when you're talking about carbon dioxide reduction, when you're talking about carbon reduction, nuclear is like the perfect tool. It produces baseload power, it produces a ton of power, and it produces zero carbon emissions power, right? You can talk about the environmental concerns, fair, uh, especially on the handling and removal which also plays into the cost piece because we don't have a long-term storage solution at the moment. Um, and so a lot of these nuclear power plants are basically paying to store their spent fuel on site or somewhere else. But just, um, so just, anyway. I just want to oh, okay. comment on that. Just a question on that. Yeah. Um, I believe, you know, France, which is way ahead of us on a nuclear front yeah. is now able to productively reuse 90% of their spent yeah. nuclear fuel which we're way behind on that because it feels like we just yeah. haven't invested in it. And, and it does seem on the kind of wayside, 
you know, there is reason to believe some of the long-term geological storage is viable. So on yeah. the, uh, like, aren't those, is it more that those things are not possible or is it more just, we're just not, we just haven't prioritized it? It's the, it's the latter for sure. Uh, I'm sure some of the folks listening have heard of Yucca Mountain. Uh, it's it's a, uh, a giant mountain in Nevada that the government identified like 35 years ago as the perfect place to store spent nuclear fuel. Um, and obviously people from Nevada do not want us trucking all of our nuclear waste to their state. Uh, and so we've constantly, we've studied the issue for 35 years and we just haven't decided to spend the money to do it. So in the meantime, everyone has to store their nuclear fuel on site, incurring a lot of cost in order to do that, making the cost of nuclear operations much more expensive. Well, the other um, option is we just store all of our nuclear um, fuel and waste in Florida. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> they might not mind. I don't know why we haven't thought of that. Um, you can just tell them it's like- Florida's frustrating. Flor- I have a bone to pick with Florida all the time, so. Oh, that's fair. Um, uh, <laughs> um, you know, but the, I, I think you're right. I think the advanced nuclear reactor technology issue is, is a really interesting one. I think, uh, I, I do want to get to your point about um, France and kind of how we got to where we are, where they got to where they are. It's basically, France has a state-run nuclear power system. Uh, it's French, the French government owns their nuclear power plants and invests in them. Not saying that's wrong or anything. That's just what they do. We have this privatized power system that we've had for a long time. And after Three Mile Island and Chernobyl, uh, we made it really hard and no one wanted to build nuclear power plants anywhere. And so we just didn't do it until basically now uh, with the Vogel power plant in, in Georgia. Um, and everyone talked about the cost overruns there uh, and talking to some folks about that, that basically no one knew how to build a power, nuclear power plant again. We hadn't done it in 45 years, 50 years. Uh, and so Americans just didn't know how to build. So they, you know, they poured the concrete wrong. Uh, they needed, it needed to be thicker. So they had to go and redo it. Uh, they, you know, they had all sorts of just like basic construction problems simply because no one knew how to, they, there wasn't the expertise to do it. Uh, so, you know, frankly, we'd get, we'd have cheaper nuclear power if we built more nuclear because we'd get better at doing it. It's the same with any technology. Um, on the, the, the new thing that everyone is talking about and I think has tremendous promise is this idea on advanced nuclear reactors. There's a million different types of ideas out there. Um, they're smaller. Um, they're, so they have to produce less energy, but some of them can, right, reuse spent fuel from, from other nuclear reactors. Um, a lot of their times they have, they have better safety mechanisms. They don't need to rely on these like advanced crazy pump systems that the AP-1000s do. Um, and really uh, coolly, I think the biggest cost savings is what's gonna come is since everyone's talking about them being modular in form that they can make them in factories instead of these massive construction projects is you can make a lot of the pieces, ship them somewhere, stick them on the ground, you know, assemble them and all that. It's not going to be cheap, but that it'll be cheaper than building wholesale massive, you know, 40 acre facilities. Um, and because they're smaller and they have a small, better safety 
uh, standards or safety inputs, you'll be able to have a smaller uh, footprint around them. So they'll be able to be closer to where you need to be. Um, a really cool idea that people have been talking about is replacing fossil fuel or specifically coal fired power plants with advanced nuclear reactors. Uh, they can be about the same size. You have the hookups there. There are already brownfield sites that you're gonna need to put something on or do in extreme environmental cleanup on. Um, and they'll hire more people and they're good paying jobs. Uh, so if, you know, a good policy solution to solving the, the woes of the Rust Belt is go to those nuclear, go to take advanced nuclear reactors and stick them where all these closing uh, coal, coal plants are. And uh, you'll have clean electricity with good paying jobs and communities that need them. Um, so I think there's a tremendous amount of potential there. Uh, we're kind of in the infancy of the advanced nuclear reactor uh, phase. Uh, you know, there's uh, New Scale, I know, was out doing a demonstration project out in Utah uh, with the Idaho National Lab, um, or it's in Idaho and for a nuclear uh, Utah power company, forget which. Um, there's a bunch of companies doing uh, small modular reactor projects. Um, I know the Department of Defense is looking into this technology because um, a lot of people don't realize, I think something like 90% of casualties in Iraq and Afghanistan over the last few years were um, basically all fuel convoys getting attacked because everyone knew that if uh, that's how we got our stuff and it was mostly bringing in uh, oil to power everything. Uh, whereas if you had a modular reactor the size of a container ship or a, not a container ship, a container, a cargo container uh, that you could just kind of airdrop that in and power your base. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of really uh, cool and interesting technolo technological developments there. And we're probably, probably five years away uh, from being five years away from like real commercial applicability. But uh, we're getting there, and I think uh, you'll, over the next five years, you'll see some really, really cool technologies start to come up and, and really get some interest um, from investors. Um, so, so, yeah, I think there's a, a tremendous amount of potential, and I think it, it really could be the, uh, the silver bullet. And I think to, to, to further bolster this point, a lot of the folks that you hear talk about how to reduce car, uh, you know, reduce utilities emissions. Talk about the first eighty percent is pretty pretty straightforward. Better transmission, some better storage, but we can get to eighty percent clean energy on a lot of the utilities that we have currently. Um, it's that last twenty percent, and I think that having that base load nuclear power, especially if it's modular, and a lot of these new reactors can turn off turn down, ramp down to, to kind of fit with the peak energy demands and how much renewables are on or off at any given time. Um, I think it's kind of the, the, the perfect slot in solution um, for, for getting us that last 20, 30% uh, to the, of decarbonizing the grid. Um, plus they produce a lot of heat for industrial things. And there's a lot of other side benefits to nuclear that don't come from wind or solar, but um, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm all on board. We just have to keep investing in it. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to dance. We're going to, we need to get her on the dance stage. Um, <laughs> dance floor. We're going to marry um, that girl. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
switching gears a little bit to the utility companies. Um, you know, this is a space I don't know that well personally in terms of how they're structured, how they operate, how much variability there is. Yeah. Uh, are they all private? Are they some are, are some state owned and, you know, kind of city owned? What's the mix? What's their business model? Because obviously they're huge, huge factors in, in the decarbonizing the grid. And, you know, they ultimately, the decision makers on where they're, you know, getting their, buying their power from to, to deliver to people. So what, what should we understand about utility companies, um, how they're structured, how they're incentivized, how their models work? And, you know, what, you know, is there, you know, sort of, I guess we know what their role is in all of this, but maybe more specifically, you know, how are they impacting this transition and, um, you know, what do we want to see from them? Yeah, I think, uh, the utility model, uh, it, you know, frankly, they get money for building stuff um, is, is how they make their money. Um, they build things and then we pay them for it. That's how they make their money. Um, the, there's a number of different types of utilities. There's investor-owned utilities. Uh, there's non-investor-owned utilities, public power, as I call them, or a lot of people call them. Um, and again, it, it all kind of comes down to the markets that you serve and the states that you serve. Um, so again, I'll use New England uh, as a reference because I, I know it pretty well. Uh, the New England ISO, independent system operator, they hold an energy market three years in advance. And they basically just say, they put out a cattle call and say, listen, uh, we want, we need X amount of megawatts of energy sell it to us, give us your bids. Um, and people just send in what price they would like to get for their energy. And they just pick the lowest ones uh, until they fulfill their megawatt needs. And then they buy a little bit extra. Um, and then there's, there's day of and read in other sort of markets, but that's the essential piece of it. On top of that, you have state goals, right? Uh, so you have, um, you have the state of Rhode Island saying we need to procure 40% of our energy from wind. Uh, and they'll go and do a, a, a power purchase agreement uh, that you know companies will bid and say, all right, we want to sell energy to you at this price. Great. Uh, and the state says, perfect, that works for us. And then they'll go bid into the energy market at that price uh, with basically a piece of paper that says, Someone's going to pay us already. So we're like, we're a good bet, even though we haven't built a single windmill. Um, and that's kind of how they end up financing the, the renewable projects. And that going forward, they have, um, the, the ISOs have a, a reliable amount of power. The utility essentially comes in and it just moves the energy from the company that builds the wind turbines to the end users who, who is whoever bought it, right? That's all they do. Uh, we pay them to build electrical wires, build out other infrastructure. Uh, now, some utility companies also own power generation sources, um, but they have to then go and do the same process. They still have to bid into the competitive markets with those energy resources, right? Um, and you just saw in, in the PJM market, and in Ohio, um, is it Next Era Energy? Uh, no, not Next Era. 
uh, Energy Harbor. Well, now one of them is called Energy Harbor. Basically, it was a utility that owned a bunch of stuff. They owned the coal plants. They owned nuclear power plants and all that. And they were a utility designed to just move power around. And they had to split their company up because it went bankrupt. Um, and so now they're two separate companies. One is basically just a nuclear power company. And one is a, is a utility that just moves electrons around. Um, so in that area, utilities end up moving whatever is the cheapest energy forms around. And a lot of that policy is more set by um, states, the federal government, and the, 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 the incentives we give to, to clean energy systems. Um, you know, frankly, a lot of those utilities are very pro decarbonization efforts and pro electrification because that means they are gonna get paid more money to move more electricity through more wires that they have to build, right? Um, so they, they work with customers all the time to reduce their, their energy loads because they don't get paid for how much electricity they move, they get paid for how much stuff they build. Um, and so they have, a, there's, they're incentivized to reach as many customers as possible and have as much electricity as possible moving on uh, whatever on whatever infrastructure they can reasonably sell to the local commission on paying them to build, right? Uh, so that's one whole side of the equation. Uh, the other side of the equation is I call it public power. Essentially, they're, they're state-owned, municipal-owned power systems that it's the same process. They say we need 10 megawatts of energy, who's going to sell it to us? And um, either the utility will say, we, we have it already, we do it ourselves, or uh, companies bid and say, we'll provide you with this energy. Um, that process is a lot more, as you mentioned, old guardy than the, the energy markets process. Um, and so I think you've seen more market-oriented moving towards clean energy in, in the, the, the free markets. Um, and you've seen a slower uptake in the public power sector. Um, but you've in the coal world anyway, the Sierra Club has their Beyond Coal campaign. Um, they've been really successful in going to the public utility commissions and saying, hold on, hold on. I know you've used this coal power plant for like 50 years and people are employed there, but someone's going to build this wind farm and give it to you for a third of the cost or two thirds of the cost of the energy prices. You are legally not allowed to basically say no to that because you have a fiduciary duty to your constituents. And they've been really successful in, in basically knocking out those power purchase agreements um, both in the free market systems from each state, but also especially in the power per, the public power states. Um, and so you just kind of see a dichotomy there, how, uh, how the energy markets work and um, the factors that can influence them. You know, in the, in the energy auction markets, it's mostly just cost um, influenced also by state policy on how much renewables or how much clean energy has to be on their grid specifically, which is covered by the market. Um, where in the, whereas in the public power sector, um, they're, they're also going by lowest cost, but sometimes um, 
you know, they don't know what the lowest cost is, or they're not really, they're kind of just going with what has been the status quo. Okay, so that was a lot. Although Dylan did warn us it can get pretty complex. In a nutshell, there are both utilities that are privately owned and compete in free markets where the lowest energy provider wins and public state-owned utilities that technically still bid but have a lot more levers at their disposal to manipulate those markets ruled by a bit of an old regard. So while the free markets are doing better in terms of transitioning to renewables, it's just not nearly happening quickly enough. The existing incentives for them to invest in this transition are being met at sort of a bare minimum threshold due to the limitations of those very incentives. Because when it comes to the free market system itself, well, Dylan supports how it's set up. The problem, as he lays out, is due to those incentives that need to be reformed at the policy level. If you could recreate our utility system from scratch, optimizing for simplicity and effectiveness and getting us to where we need to be, what would, you know, and it's a, you're not tied down by any legacy structure. Yeah. What, what would that look like? Knowing what you yeah, know. Frankly, I think, I think the energy market um, system that we have works really well um, to produce low cost electricity for people, which is also a big key to this, right? Um, you know, people talk about environmental justice and, and all that. And, you know, at the same time, we need to keep electricity rates affordable for people. Absolutely. Um, and so I think that the, that that market system we have set up is ideal. I think what it needs to be paired with is federal policy that says, like a clean, a clean electricity standard that says all of your power will be clean by X date with certain implementation dates along the way. Um, because what you're, you know, I think the best way to do this is set the market conditions and then let the market go decide what is the most efficient way to do this. Uh, now that, that might be building tons of variable renewable sources and then spending the other billions of dollars to build this transmission infrastructure and storage infrastructure, or it might be a mix of renewables and nuclear, or it might be someone says, hey, I've developed this new carbon capture technology that turns carbon into a solid and we can just shove it back in the ground and we can do that cheaply and okay, we've solved our decarbonization problem. Um, and so I think letting, I think setting that baseline for what the energy mix will be 100% clean by 2050, 2035, whatever it is. Um, and then letting the low, the, 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 the marketplace do its job within that framework is, is the correct way to go. Got it. Um, so, so if, if, you're a proponent of the the market structure as it is, but you know feel we just need the right policies to to sort of pair up with that to um, to kind of provide the you know to help push the right incentives. You know that I think is a good segue into the clean electricity performance program. Yeah. And you know if we're back to our our energy prom, and you know nuclear has been crowned the prom queen, and the clean energy clean electricity, sorry, performance program has been crowned the prom king and the prom king is on stage giving his acceptance speech. It seems like Joe Manson just drove a monster truck onto the stage and just ran over the prom king. Yeah. Um, that's, that's what it seems like. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, how, how big of a blow was it to, you know, kind of, uh, you know, have, 
you know, the kind of a decisive vote um, because of, you know, because of how the party, how we're structured in, in the Senate right now, to have a decisive vote sort of go against that on the Democratic side. Uh, and, you know, what, and, and for, you know, we'll, I'll explain to listeners like what the, you know, sort of what that program is. So you, like, you don't have to yeah. get too much into that, but how big of a blow was it for folks like yourself that are, you know, on Capitol Hill and trying to advance it and what, what can we do to revive it, resuscitate it, or is it, is it not possible? And we're just going to have to look elsewhere. Um, yeah, I think you can move on from it. Um, unfortunately, the king is dead. Um, it seems anyway. Now, of course, this could all change tomorrow. Who knows? Uh, I am not Joe Manchin, but um, um, yeah, I think I think the CEPP was the best way we could do a better policy under the reconciliation rules, right? Um, the original idea was to just do a clean energy standard, just require utilities to have a certain amount of clean energy by certain dates and getting to 100% by 2035. Um, the CEPP would penalize them for not reaching uh, goals, not reaching, uh, you know, clean energy improvement goals and then pay them if they did reach those goals. Um, it, you know, it was kind of a convoluted program to, to get to the same point. Um, uh, so I think it was, it was a big blow, but I also do think that what you're, what we're going to end up seeing is that a lot of that money will be taken and reinvested in decarbonization efforts elsewhere. Um, which is something I've been working on. Um, and I think we'll see, you know, so I think you'll see a lot of focus on, on the industrial sector and buildings. Um, so yeah, in the, in the power sector, it's, it's a huge blow. I think there's more hope that climate generally and decarbonization efforts generally are not as, are not as being left behind as it would seem if we just cut the CEPP. Um, but no, I think, I think it's a, it's a, it's, it's tough um, to see that happen. And I think a lot of the reason that it got cut essentially was that um, the carbon intensity thresholds excluded natural gas, even with high rates of carbon capture. Um, and that just wasn't gonna be acceptable to uh, a Senator whose state who's completely reliant on coal and natural gas for mm -hmm. like half of its economy. Um, and in order to raise that carbon intensity threshold and allow natural gas with carbon capture to qualify, the program would just have to become wildly more expensive. And that was obviously going against the general trend of making the bill less expensive. Um, so I think it was, it was a death by a couple, a couple issues. Um, but no, it's definitely, I think, I think it was a tough, tough message to hear at first. Um, and then I think the, the focus shifted to, okay, if that is not an acceptable way of decarbonizing the grid for decarbonization generally, what, what can we focus on and where can we redirect these resources? Um, so I think there's more hope at the end of the tunnel than just killing the CEPP would, would sound like, um, while at the same time, obviously not tackling the mammoth problem of decarbonizing the grid as effectively as, as you would hope. Um, 
like and as like we talked about decarbonizing the grid is pretty much the most important thing we can do and so it it seems like it should be the first step in decarbonizing everything else but um but that alas not to be uh as i guess the senator mansion has pointed out we should probably win more elections <laughs> if we don't want to have to listen to him <laughs> so Again, as a quick recap, the Clean Electricity Performance Program that was a leading pillar of Biden's clean energy program overall was significant because it was the first time we would see both a carrot and a stick enforced on utility companies, meaning hit above the target goal, in this case, transitioning at least 4% of your electricity supply each year to renewables and get rewarded financially, stay below that threshold and face financial penalties. Unfortunately, Democratic Senator Joe Manchin ended that by voting it down because the Senate is evenly split today, 50-50 between Democrats and Republicans, and Republicans are not yet at a place where they want to see big spending against climate change. If anything, the few Republicans that do acknowledge the urgency of climate change would rather see the party champion something like a carbon tax. So without Manchin's vote, Biden could not push the CEPP forward, and it's all deemed but dead at this point. For Manchin, he represents West Virginia, a state with a lot of jobs in coal and gas that would be threatened by this program over time. You can understand on that level why he may have felt the need to stick by the side of those that voted him in office. But this opens up an issue I've long had with this transition. If we move faster into renewables at the policy level, it's going to come with some short-term job loss and job transition for those in fossil fuels. Now, I could care less about the wealthy elite executives at fossil fuel companies. But I do hold a lot of sympathy for those blue-collar working-class folks that need those jobs. Why not supplement them with income to help them be part of this transition and bake that into these programs? Maybe that can make it easier for the Joe Mansions of the world to support these types of things. I asked Dylan his thoughts on this. I wonder if, you know, and I don't know if this would really be effective, and this would also add costs, to your point, it creates, creates another barrier. Although I'm, I'm increasingly sort of flabbergasted by just why we care about the national debt because it's so large. It seems like, what is the point of, of this? It's a, it's an yeah. absurd number at this point. Let's just keep printing money for what things we actually need. But uh, it's easy for me to say, you know, sitting in my, my, my little Airbnb in Portland. Um, but it, you know, when, when, when Biden, you know, stopped the Keystone pipeline in January, right. I think you, like myself, probably yourself cheered that, um, you know, big, big proponents of that. The thing that I was a little, I struggled with was, you know, a lot of blue collar workers, not the executives at, you know, the energy company building the pipeline, but the, you know, the blue collar workers, the contractors um, get displaced and uh, you know, those people live paycheck to paycheck. Right. And they don't, it's, you know, I, I was hoping he would also include with that shutdown, you know, kind of subsidizing, you know, the, the blue collar workers, the working class workers pay for, let's say six months, um, yeah. you know, maybe, or maybe a, with, with some retraining in the renewable space to kind of soften the blow because, you know, I, I without that, I felt it was going to be easy for, you know, the right wing media. And as they did to, to say, you know, Biden's killing jobs, he's ruining people's lives. And, and in some ways they're not wrong about that. Right. Um, he is yeah. taking some jobs away. I think 11,000 people lost their jobs in that, in that project, but you know, I felt like, why don't you accompany it with subsidizing these folks for a period of time? And I look at the, you know, the CEPP, um, not the same situation because, you know, you, you can't, you know, I don't know if 
six months of subsidy for those those natural gas and coal workers in in West Virginia is going to go far enough because they're not going to get like their jobs back um, in that in that state. But like in that case, but certainly it feels like it would be a helpful way to create more support for these systems by taking care of those blue collar workers, um, at least for a period of time, providing retraining into renewable space, things like that. Do you think that is like something that we can look towards uh, trying to include in the future or is it not going to move the needle enough? And is it just going to add more costs, which like, you know, it, you know, creates a, a different, a different problem? No, we 100% need to do that. Um, I think I mentioned it earlier. We're not going to get to any of these goals if people think what what is happening in their day-to-day lives is terrible because of it, right? Um, you know, I always make I always make the terrible answer of like, what's what's the one thing we can do to to stop climate change? And I just say, elect Democrats. Um, well, if if everyone's losing their jobs because Democrats keep installing renewable energy policy with no worker provisions in them then they're going to not elect Democrats and then we're not going to do anything about climate change. Yeah. Um, right. Uh, now it's a simplistic uh, partisan answer on it, but, um, but it's true to a degree. Um, you know, and frankly, a lot of the times the blue collar workers we're talking about, they're, they're, they're not necessarily living paycheck to paycheck. Sometimes they have awesome jobs. Um, we hear this all the time in the, especially in Western Pennsylvania and Eastern Ohio and, and in all the, the shale gas areas, um, these guys are all union workers who are making 70, 80, 90, dollars $110,000 a year. Uh, you know, there's a big, a big fight up in Pennsylvania about the shell cracker plant that they're building to make plastics that, that is paying like an average of like $80,000 a year for six years to 6,000 workers. Um, uh, you know, that's not a, it's not an argument for or against the plant itself. Uh, but that's that's a tough argument to people to say, well, we don't really need that because this general idea about the environment, um, right? Um, and so I think a big challenge is generally that there's a twofold problem. You're telling people they have to go to a different industry. They don't necessarily have a problem with that, but you have to get them ready to do it, right? Mm-hmm. Um and this is, again, going back to, I think the advanced nuclear reactor idea is awesome because it's construction, it's power plant jobs. It's the things these people are generally used to doing. And with some training, we can just put the power plant where they used to work and they could work every day like new. Um, I think a big piece of this puzzle is bringing, domesticating a lot of the supply chain and manufacturing for a clean energy system. Uh, we need to be making wind turbine blades, wind turbine steel shafts, wind turbine. And you've seen some progress. I think they're opening a steel, the Bethlehem steel mill in Baltimore, around Baltimore for all the offshore wind projects that are going off in Maryland and New Jersey. Um, so you're seeing some of that investment. We need to like really bring that home though. Um, you know, I know in the battery space, uh, 95% of the the anodes, cathodes, and the early supply chain pieces for battery packs for electric vehicles are made either in South Korea, Taiwan, or China. Um, well, those are all jobs we could do here. Uh, we could we could manufacture those things. We don't have the national security issues that come with having uh, these things all dominated by foreign foreign countries. Um, 
and they'll provide good paying manufacturing jobs. Now, it, yeah, we're not gonna have necessarily assembly lines and there'll be a lot of automation, but it will be jobs. Um, and in the renewable sector, a big issue is they have low rates of unionization. And frankly, they have, a lot of these jobs are terrible jobs. Um, like union, uh, solar, uh, solar um, uh, installation, uh, frankly, it's contract work. Yeah, you, you might get $20, $25 an hour, but once you're install, done installing the 10 homes that they've hired you for, you're, you're done. You don't have healthcare benefits, you don't have retirement benefits. And so how do, we, how do we keep the renewable energy costs low as we've talked about needing to do in order to break through in this market while also ensuring that the jobs we're transitioning people into are good paying jobs that they want to be in. Um, that's a real challenge. I think there's, uh, you know, in the, recon the, house, the house reconciliation bill, the house build back better bill, uh, they would take the, the existing uh, investment tax credits for renewable sources. Uh, it's 30% right now. They would add, I think, they would basically bump it up to either 40 or 50% based on your domestic content and your um, unionization, essentially. Um, or participation with, with labor. Um, and that is a good incentive in order to move the needle in terms of, okay, well, I'd rather my, my, my project only cost 50% instead of 70%. So I'll just find some domestic suppliers or I'll hire a union uh, workers to do the work. Um, I think that's a good incentive. Uh, again, I think with the overall strategy of if we had a CEPP or uh, a clean energy standard, then we would have, uh, you know, a bigger, a bigger set of parameters to, for, to work in that with. But I think it's, it's imperative that we bring people along, um, especially those who are asking to either transition out of their jobs or, or just kind of lose their jobs. We need to, we need to ensure these people are taken care of um, and have a future. Otherwise, uh, not only they will be upset and, and not on board with this transition, but all the people they know and all the people who depend on them will also not support this transition. And then how do you, how do you get, how do you do the transition if you have wide, wide swaths of people just being against it, not even for the environmental or climate reasons or political reasons, but because their livelihoods are at risk. Yeah, absolutely. And it's understandable if you're in those, in those shoes. Finally, I finished up our chat getting his thoughts on a general carbon tax. Oh, the elusive carbon tax, something that makes a ton of sense in theory, but likely would never get enough political support to actually happen. Or could it? Dylan certainly would know better than I. Will we ever have a true, gen in the US, a general carbon tax? And if your answer is no, sort of one sentence on why, and if your answer is yes, you know, by what year and one sentence on, on why? If I had to guess, I would say no for an economy-wide carbon tax. Um, the reason being that it seems politically impossible to tell Americans that you're going to raise the cost of every good in the country and that we promise the government will send you the money back. <laughs> uh, it doesn't, it, right, like when, when you say it, it doesn't sound like a great argument. Um, uh, I think you, there's a possibility of seeing carbon taxes on 
specific sectors that that would be the most useful way to push them to decarbonize, but could also be protectionists in terms of like border adjustment policy. Um, uh, I think, so I think you could see it there, um, but I think you would, I, I think the idea that we're just gonna have, a, we're just gonna tax carbon on every product in America is, is it's not based in reality. Um, yeah. And I think you're much more likely to see a, a sector by sector approach of a clean energy standard, a carbon tax on industry with a border adjustment, uh, specific policies for the agriculture sector, et cetera, et cetera. The same, the tailpipe emissions for cars. We have a lot of tools already for different sectors that we can uh, like get to our goals with. And I think you much more likely to see bolstering of those or um, revamping of those than you would uh, this kind of nationwide market thing. I also think partially, um, the science is not really settled on whether it will work. Um, I, you know, listened to your podcast on the direct air capture and they talked about carbon offsets and carbon credits and things like that. It's not super clear because we obviously haven't done it that, you know, ExxonMobil wouldn't just pay the tax, um, <laughs> right? Uh, like they, they're like a tens of billions of dollar a year company. Um, if the tax isn't wildly punitive right up front, why wouldn't Exxon just pay it? Um, yeah, well, it would need to be, you know, it would need to be somewhat variable and adjusting, you know, kind of like our income tax would be, but that, that makes it even harder to pass right. in a way. And so, and, and, so there's just a lot of questions about it that I think, you know, and I think, frankly, uh, you know, I it's a great, it ends up being a great cop-out tool for people who don't want to see real like stringent policy passed or strict regulation passed. So, no, 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 no. We should let the market take care of this through a carbon fee mechanism or a carbon pricing mechanism. But then we actually ask them like, okay, what's the number? Like would $20 a ton be okay? Would $30? And they're like, oh no, we don't actually want a carbon tax. Like we're just saying it'd be better than what you want to do. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it'd be hard uh, so, to agree on that on that price, but yeah, it'd um, have, I mean, to move the needle, I mean, I would have to be closer to fifty to hundred dollars a ton, right? But, and and know. frankly, to just nationwide to start there, you're talking, uh, you know, just I don't even know you would see economy wise, right? Like, what what does that do to investment patterns? What does that do? Like, you know, a big question we hear all the time is, all right, we got to put a border fee on to be commensurate so we're not getting hammered by low cost, high carbon things from China or, or Southeast Asia generally. Um, but how do we, how do we count their carbon? Um, yeah. You know, do we, well, do, we, do we trust the Chinese to, to tell us their, their true carbon measures? How do we, so there's a lot of implementation questions. There's a lot of market questions. Um, so that's for all of those reasons, I say no. Uh, there's a, well, there's a pollution tax, you know, getting kind of passed around the EU right now. And, and, you know, the EU, I, you know, and the UK as many issues as I have uh, with them and other fronts, they, they have been, you know, pretty progressive on the climate front. Uh, I suspect their proposal on their pollution tax will get discussed at COP26. Yeah. Nothing, nothing concrete is going to happen. Sadly, nothing concrete really ever happens at these summits. But um, the will, yeah, it's going to get kicked around. And and 
I think if anybody's going to experiment with it first, it would be them or some version of it. It won't like, yeah. yeah. And we'll see, you know, we'll see how, how it goes. But of course, like the two obviously markets that really matter in this regard are US and China. So, yeah. yeah. So they'll, yeah, the Europeans will definitely put some sort of border fee on based on their carbon trading system. Um, but to your point, the, the, the heavyweights in this area are, are us, China, and to some degree going forward, India. Yeah. Um, and, and how does, how does that play out? Um, and I think, I think one of the best incentives we should have, frankly, and I think we need to talk about this more is for um, all these investing in all these carbon reduction technologies, whether it's advanced nuclear or carbon capture or direct air capture or whatever it may be, is that there's an entire world out there that needs all of this while at the same time needing more electricity. Um, and we should own this space. Um, well, for, I'll, I'll give you a perfect example uh, of decarbonization technology led by the US that just needed a policy push. Um, I, uh, everyone remembers the ozone crisis. Uh, we had to stop using, um, whatever they were called, HFCs, um, or maybe that's the new thing. We had to stop using the ozone depleting stuff. Donald Trump complained about how he couldn't spray his hair anymore um, and all that, right? So we have the new hydrofluorocarbons, which are in air conditioners, refrigerators, et cetera, et cetera. Really, really potent greenhouse gases technology. Um, there was the Kigali protocol, which the whole world kind of agreed, like we should get off of these. The U.S., as usual, didn't sign on at all. Um, but eventually, a bunch of U.S. companies developed greenhouse gas-free solutions to replace air conditioner, the, these HFCs with. Um, and so the Chamber of Commerce, NAM, all these groups came together and said, wait, hold on, no. The U.S. should pass the Kigali um, proposal as U.S. law so that our companies have the, the policy backing to go do all this manufacturing. It's gonna create something like 300,000 manufacturing jobs. And we can sell this, this technology all over the world for the companies that make them here in the States. And so that's the kind of stuff we should, we should try to be leading the way in all of this. Because um, it, it not only presents a, a climate solution, but it presents an economic opportunity and a manufacturing opportunity um, right, for all those blue collar workers, for all the people who lost their manufacturing jobs, uh, we can do all that stuff here um, and export it around the world and not, you know, not and be leaders both in climate and, and in the, the economic sense and not have these countries have to grapple with, uh, do we install coal plants to have electricity or do we have a good solid backing from the U.S. to build wind farms or solar panels or whatever so, you know, this is a, this is a jobs and economic opportunity as well as it is a, a climate solution. Um, and I think we really need to focus on it from that point, from a messaging standpoint to people to say, this is a real opportunity for the U.S., um, not just this kind of, you know, theoretical, we need to save the world argument, um, which while true, uh, clearly hasn't moved the needle as much on public opinion as, as, as would, be, would be nice. Well, Dylan, thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for all the work you're doing there on Capitol Hill. Uh, it's super valuable. Hope it doesn't, you know, 
you know, kind of de-age you by 20 years. <laughs> I imagine it could, it could, it could do to one, <laughs> but for uh, sure. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, happy to, happy to chat, uh, climate change and decarbonization anytime. And, uh, happy to answer any more questions if you have them. It's always helpful to get this kind of insight from someone on Capitol Hill. There is positive momentum on decarbonizing our grid, but not nearly enough movement to date. We need stronger policy and incentives on our utility sector. We need to embrace nuclear. And we need the big electricity private companies taking it on themselves to transition as well by doing things like purchasing renewable energy contracts and joining coalitions such as the 24-7 Clean Energy Program. Thank you as always for tuning in and spending an hour with us. Thank you for your support. And thank you for standing up for this big, beautiful planet and all the incredible life on it. Until next time.